You're listening to Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. From obsessions to possessions, from hexes to hauntings, if it's demonic, I'm on it. I'm Susan Vigilante. Welcome to the podcast. So here's a question. How many metalheads does it take to screw in a light bulb? Give up? None! Metalheads embrace the darkness! But I'm bum. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, I, I'll show myself out. Well, heavy metal. We've all thrilled at some point to heavy metal. You know, the head-pounding beat, the relentlessly buzzing bass, the singing that could easily be mistaken for somebody choking to death. Not to mention, it's the genre that led to the creation of one of my favorite films, This is Spinal Tap. To this day, I can't see a picture of that big circle of stones on Salisbury Plain in England and not say to myself, oh yeah, Stonehenge, mm, Stonehenge. I mean, metal has given us a lot of love, am I right? But seriously, there's no question that metal has also been the subject of a lot of controversy ever since its inception. One study from the early 2000s concluded that the genre that gave us songs like, you know, The Number of the Beast and Raining Blood is actually the preferred music of geniuses. Others point out that its most widely recognized fans are Beavis and Butthead. Now, you know, you can make up your own mind there. Okay, one more time, but seriously. A lot of metal music, now, I know there are lots of different kinds of metal music, but I'm going to use metal as an umbrella term here. A lot of it is loaded with images of violence, rape, murder, even cannibalism. Critics have complained about this aspect of metal for years. But so far, metal bands have ignored them. I mean, this stuff makes a lot of money. Why kill the golden goose, right? Metal has been called the devil's music since, uh, I don't know, since, since, since Jimi Hendrix played the national anthem at Woodstock. Now, being called the devil's music is not much of a big deal in itself. That same charge has been leveled at jazz, blues, rock and roll, uh, basically all the good music. But there's one difference. In the metal world, the devil is a major presence. He's in the lyrics, he's in the videos, he's on the album covers. So much so, in fact, that many modern exorcists believe that heavy metal is a major influence on kids who get involved with the occult. Now, personally, I can't, I, I'm not sure I believe that. I really do think that metal bands are much more interested in getting kids to buy tickets to the concerts than they are in getting kids to get interested in the occult. But I also believe that there are a lot of impressionable and not terribly discerning young metal fans out there. I mean, you know, it's it's no accident that Mike Judge made Beavis and Butthead metal fans. And that's the problem. This episode of Legion concerns heavy metal, Satan, and murder. And once again, it's not for kids. Elise Poller was every mother's dream. At 15, she was tall. She was five foot seven. She was she was tall for a girl. She was blonde, she was blue-eyed, she was really pretty. Um, she was the oldest of four kids who got good grades in school, made her own clothes, 
sang in the church choir. I mean, you know, she was every mother's dream. She was the perfect daughter. But ever since she started high school, she'd been a little different. She started sneaking out after curfew. She experimented with alcohol. She started smoking weed. Her parents, you know, her parents hoped this was part of some phase. They weren't going to lose their minds over it. They knew she was a good girl at heart. One summer evening, Elise was out for a walk with her mother when a couple of boys approached her. They told her that a man had slipped and fallen off the bank at the side of the road and had broken his leg, and he needed help. When Elise ran over to check, the boys surrounded her and started pushing her down the bank. Elise's mother came running, and the boys ran off. Both Elise and her mother brushed the incident off. They, they said the kids were just fooling around. This is, I have to say, this is astonishing to me. If somebody tried to shove my daughter down a bank into a, you know, into a gully, I would not brush it off. So a couple of weeks after that night, Elise was watching a movie with her family when the phone rang. Elise answered, and she spoke to somebody for a few minutes. When she came back to the living room, she announced that she was tired and she was going to go to bed. So she went up to her room. Then she arranged some pillows to look like a sleeping girl's body on the bed and threw a blanket over them. Oldest trick in the book, right? Then she slipped out of the house. She never came home. Elise's parents reported her missing the next day. At first, the police refused to take them seriously because they said, obviously, you know, this girl had just run off with a boyfriend. It happens every day. She'll be back sooner or later. No worries. But Elise's parents insisted that could not possibly be the case. They knew all about Elise and her, you know, her dabbling in drugs. They'd even sent her into rehab once. They knew about the strange new friends, too. But there was no way their daughter, who despite her current issues, deeply loved her family, would just run away. They knew that in their hearts. They knew that in their bones. Eventually, the police gave in and initiated a search for the missing girl. And the phone calls started pouring into the police station. People were saying they'd seen Elise at a mall. They'd seen her at the Dairy Queen. They'd seen her waiting for a bus. They'd seen her everywhere. Of course, none of the calls led anyplace. But her parents kept hoping one day one of those calls would. A particularly cruel hoax was played on the family. When someone called and told them they knew where Elise was and that she would be home by Christmas. Naturally, the family spent Christmas Day huddled together in the living room, watching the front door and praying that Elise would come walking through at any minute. And, of course, she didn't. It was the most dismal Christmas the family ever had. In early March of 1996, eight months after Elise disappeared, the police got yet another call about the girl. I have some information about the missing girl, Elise Poller, the voice said. She's dead. By now, the police had gotten hundreds of calls like this, and they just you know, filed it with the others. They didn't take any action on it. But a few days later, on March 13, 1996, Royce Casey walked into the police station and confessed to the murder of Elise Poller. He did more than confess. 
he told the cops the whole story. And the whole story was infinitely worse than anything the police could have imagined. And it all started with heavy metal. In the summer of 1995, Royce Casey was 17 years old. His buddy, Jacob Delichmutt, was 16, and the youngest of the group, Joseph Fiorella, was 14. Despite their age differences, the three boys had quite a bit in common. They were all troubled teens. They'd all had problems fitting in at the local high school. Eventually, Jacob was expelled for drug possession and swearing at teachers. Joseph left to be homeschooled, and Royce was placed in a continuance school. They were all considered weirdos by the other kids. They all did drugs, and they were all huge metal fans. Metal was the center of their lives. They listened to it 24 hours a day. Metal was what brought them together and what kept them together. They were particularly devoted to the thrash metal band Slayer. Now, Slayer was already very successful. In 1995, they had already sold well over 2 million albums. And they would go on to sell millions more. Their most recent album at the time of this story was 1994's Divine Intervention. One of the tracks is called Serenity in Murder. I'm not going to lie, the lyrics are pretty chilling. Here are some of them. Let me take you down without a sound, dead before you hit the ground. Peaceful and serene, slowly bleeding, eyes once bright are now fading. Pallid, ashen face against my skin, staring blindly at some distant place. Three boys decided they were going to form their own band. They named it Hatred. And more than anything in the world, they wanted to be just like Slayer. They wanted to be stars. They wanted to be millionaires. They, they wanted masses of adoring fans. There was just one problem. Not one of them had any idea how to go about it. But the youngest member of the band, Joseph Fiorella, had an idea. I was saying earlier that the world of heavy metal is rife with odes to darkness. Satan is spoken of as some kind of god in metal chat rooms. And these guys had spent an awful lot of time in those metal chat rooms. All three of them were into the occult. But Joseph Fiorella's interest was intense. He had filled his bedroom with a library of books on the occult. He read everything he could about Aleister Crowley. He learned everything he could about black magic. And he listened to unlimited hours of metal music. He later told the police, the music started to shape the way I looked at things. Anyway, Fiorella became convinced that Satan could help the boys put hatred on the map. But... From his extensive studies of all things satanic, he also knew that the devil didn't give out favors like that for free. The devil would want something in return. So if they were going to convince Satan to help them, he thought, they would have to offer him a sacrifice first. And not just any sacrifice. It had to be a major sacrifice. It had to be a human sacrifice. Fiorella thought, it's got to be a virgin sacrifice. He remembered that there was a girl at Arroyo Grande High School. She, he remembered her because they used to ride the school bus together. She was very pretty. She was blonde. She was blue-eyed. 
and Jacob was sure she had to be a virgin. Elise Pollard, he decided, would make the perfect sacrifice. Jacob Delishmith said later that uh, Fiorella had once asked him if he would be, quote, down for sacrificing a virgin. I didn't take it seriously, Jacob said. I, I just said, you know, whatever. But he must have taken it seriously enough. Certainly Fiorella did. They planned the thing for months. They even, accidentally as it happened, had a dry run the night they tried to push Elise into the ravine, but were frightened off by her mother. Then, finally, they put their plan into action. On the night of July 22, 1995, one of the boys called Elise at home and asked if she'd like to get together and do some drugs. Elise had smoked weed with the Hatred Boys before. She liked them. You know, they were a little strange, but that was part of what made them interesting to her. So she said, okay. She agreed to meet them at a eucalyptus grove, a little bit, of, about a mile from her house. Then she told her parents she was going to bed. She set up the pillow Elise and sneaked out. She caught up with the boys near the grove. There in the quiet, as she walked in front of Jacob, he slipped his belt over her head and wrapped it around her neck. She struggled. One boy pulled out a hunting knife. The three of them took turns stabbing Elise while she screamed and cried and begged for help, crying out for her mother and calling on Jesus to help her. The boys ignored her pleas. They stabbed her a total of 12 times. When she finally fell to the ground, they stomped on her neck. At last, Elise went still. The boys threw her body into a shallow grave and left. But none of the knife wounds had been fatal. When the boys left, Elise was still alive. And she died a slow and horrible death, bleeding to death in the woods. Her body would not be found for nearly a year. In early March of 1996, eight months after Elise disappeared, the police got yet another call about her. I have some information about the missing girl, Elise Poller, the voice said. She's dead. The police ignored the call. They'd had hundreds just like it. But a few days later, on March 13, 1996, the caller showed up at the police station. In the time since the night of Elise's death, Royce Casey had converted to Christianity. Tormented by guilt, he went to a priest and confessed what he and the others had done to Elise. The priest was able to persuade him to turn himself in to the cops. So Royce went to the station, and he told the police everything. Royce, Fiorella, and Delishmut were all arrested and charged with murder. Police suspected Elise had been raped as well, but by the time her mummified body was discovered, it was too degraded for authorities to make a call on that. That's all bad enough. That's all worse than bad enough. But in my mind, there is a particularly chilling afternote to this story. It turned out that when the three boys were arrested, no one in Elise's school was surprised. In fact, several students admitted that they had known all along that Elise was dead. 
Not only that, they had known, or they were pretty sure, who had killed her. Not one of these students mentioned any of this to the police. A conspiracy of silence let Elise's body rot in the woods. Joseph Fiorella, who was 16, received 26 years to life for first-degree murder as part of a plea bargain with county prosecutors. Jacob Delishmut and Royce Casey also got 26 to life. Years after the murder, the killers tried to downplay the satanic aspect of Elise's death. Delishmut and Casey said the whole thing really was about Fiorella's obsession with the girl. If that's true, that was one amazingly powerful obsession. Not only did it convince Fiorella to commit murder, it let him convince two other and older boys to go along with the plan. In 2001, Elise's family sued Slayer and Sony Music on the grounds that their music was what had inspired the teens to murder their daughter. Their case was thrown out on First Amendment grounds. This is the typical ending to cases like this. And that song? It was wrong. There is no serenity in murder. Not for the victim, at least. And not for the people who loved her. My sources for this episode of Legion include The Washington Post, The Guardian, the San Luis Obispo Tribune, Medium.com, Everlovin' Wikipedia, and FallenClassmates.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Legion, the podcast about the devil and all his works. I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm Susan Vigilante, and remember, the devil's first trick is to convince you he doesn't exist. 